Welcome to the People and Technology Podcast. This is episode two, and it's great uh, to be back. Uh, I'm joined on the line today from Christchurch, New Zealand, by my colleague Jared Cameron. How are you, Jared? Yeah, great, Dave. A bit warmer weather here, actually. Um, we're, we're heading for a mighty 17 today, so um, a bit warmer than we've been having. Fantastic. Well, we've uh, got a pretty cold start here in Sydney this morning. So, um, yeah, look, uh, and by the way, I'm David Gazzarotto. Um, we are Jazz and Gaz, and uh, we're uh, pleased to bring you another episode of the People and Technology podcast. Well, um, we got some feedback last time, Jared. Yeah, we did. A couple of, uh, couple of good pieces here and you know some some friends uh sending some things through but uh, here's one um really enjoyed the podcast you guys are the hamish and andy of technology hey how about that pretty cool huh not bad um i reckon we're actually a bit funnier than them but um that i guess the jury's out on that one um you guys rocked it can't wait for the next one so uh thanks mum for that <laughs> good old bubs <laughs> Very good. And uh, the last one here, Jared, here's another one that's, uh, uh, I think, quite um, pertinent. Um, always thought you two had a good had good heads for radio. <laughs> so, um, thanks for that. Excellent. Anyway, lucky we're not doing it on video. That's probably why we've gone with the podcast option. Keep the feedback coming, folks. Um, let us know what you think. Uh, give us some topic suggestions and uh, any guests you might like to see on the show as we evolve it further. It's uh, fun to bring it along. So... Um, Jared, news of the week, mate. We've got. Um, I think we're going to have to have a bit of a political agenda on this one. Um, yeah. Since we last did the podcast, we've had uh, probably a couple of big uh, political votes that have gone on. Um, we've had, of course, Brexit, and uh, we've got a bit to discuss on the Brexit situation today. Um, and also, it's Monday morning here in Australia, and uh, it is the. Um, yet again, we have a federal election that's gone on the weekend, and uh, we don't know the result yet. So um, we're grappling with uh, whether we're going to have a hung parliament and everything that comes from that too. So um, I think um, it would be remiss of us not to have a bit of a discussion about the implications of these for people and technology. So why don't we start? Brexit came before it, so why don't we have a crack at, um, you know... Uh, the Brexit story. Do you want to um, lead us off with the headline there, Jared? Yeah, it's um, I guess not something that anybody will be um, surprised to hear, no doubt. But um, you know, really, the story here is first of all um, shock and awe to most of the world, followed very um, very quickly by um, surprise at the way that I guess um, the politicians are playing this out. You know, I guess if, if you'd asked me a week ago uh, how I felt about it, you know, my reaction initially would have been. I can't believe it's happened. I never would have imagined that uh, the UK would contemplate leaving the, the EU. But um, but actually, now that I'm a week in, I'm actually starting to almost wonder if they're going to, Dave. I don't know whether um, whether that's a possibility <laughs> yeah. that's occurred to you as well. But uh, with, with all the news I'm reading at the moment, it almost seems like it's a complicated path to, uh, to actually make it happen now. Yeah, we've seen the hashtags change from Brexit to Brigret now, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah. The backlash seems to have come through. I think the other side of it too is um, we don't – there aren't any political leaders. um, There were lots of political leaders leaders over there driving, uh, you know, driving the whole process and and having – uh, being very vocal about it, but they've all seemed to go gone to ground now, and they don't want to stick their hands up and, no. and take it forward. So, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's decided now that um, uh, he's not the right guy to uh, to to 
take on the aftermath and make it happen. So um, interesting times, yeah. And I think, um, you know, two words that probably nobody had ever heard of before were Article 50. And suddenly that's mm. becoming a really topical, you know, part of discussion around um, when or if or how will the UK initiate the clause that, that begins the process. And actually, I think David Cameron did a bit of a masterstroke here in opting not to do it and then uh, effectively hanging up his boots. You know, it really has um, handed the baton over to the opposition uh, to say, hey, you know, you guys made this happen. You need to you need to actually implement it as well. Um, mm. I did a bit of reading over the weekend and, um, you know, a couple of things that came to mind around this, Dave. Um, you know, initially $2 trillion was wiped off the global economy when Brexit was first mm. announced. Uh, which Much is... of it from my superannuation fund, yeah. I must say. <laughs> Uh-oh. And, um, I mean, some of that's recovered in some of the markets, but the general consensus is most of the markets are still down and, you know, haven't totally recovered from that. And the other thing I read was that, um, you know, the, the rating agencies, SMP and Fitch, have both downgraded the UK credit rating. And I think that's quite a significant move. That's a, an indication of their nervousness around uh, what this might mean for the for the British economy. And, uh, and, I, and the third thing I read was there are a number of um, a number of financial organisations that are looking to move quite large volumes of their uh, their roles out of the UK and into Europe and um, in, the, in the numbers of thousands of roles. Now, whether there's any truth to that or not, um, if there is, you know, that's going to that's gonna signal a pretty big exit of, um, you know, a bit of a brain drain on the UK, and but also there's the financial drain that's going to have as well. You know, will people go with the roles? Will they be allowed to or will they be made redundant and new roles opened up in Europe? Yeah, it's interesting. And I think from a tech perspective, that's got some pretty big implications uh, for the UK, especially you've got, uh, you know, the EU was about fundamentally about freedom of movement, freedom of access to markets, and I guess the freedom of, um, you know, the movement of capital so that investment could occur and innovation could be driven. And and even, you know, even if this doesn't happen in, in a total exit scenario, um, the impacts already, uh, there will be an impact. Um, and you're going to have it's the uncertainty, right? So if you're mm-hmm. looking to make investments, whether you are looking to procure technology, you've probably shelved your projects waiting for, you know, what's going to happen. And uh, and, and maybe, you know, you're going to wait another year or two before you, you take the plunge on that big technology investment that you would otherwise have gone for. I think also, you know, from a vendor's or from a technology um, industry perspective, you've got a lot of um it's a very it's always been a very multicultural you know you've got people crossing borders to work for firms in startups in you know and uh i would have thought that one of the things that uh brexit would do would get people who are not you know who are foreign nationals working in the uk uh might start saying well you know do i go back home now and and mm. you know and and get my career going back um, back somewhere else in the world or back into Europe. Um, so that brain drain or talent drain could be an impact and it could happen before Article 50 is pushed just from the uncertainty and people wanting to shore up their futures. So I think there's some some interesting things to come from that um, in terms of technology. And I think, um, you know, sometimes when you, when you have these sort of significant events like this, um, it can have 
rather, you know, long lasting effects that maybe aren't necessarily visible today. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the challenges facing, you know, the UK actually is to say, what's this going to mean for us in five years or in 10 years time? And, you know, there's no, you can't see the future. We, we don't actually know what the answer to that's going to be. But I think what you're highlighting around the very real challenges that they're facing right now in the technology space. I mean, I think about, about venture capitalists, you know, are you going to, you know, really continue to invest in new startups right now when you've got so much turbulence and uncertainty in the economy? You know, or are they going to be starting to say, you know what, there's a couple of, couple of million we thought we'd put into this new business, but actually it's, it's too high risk now. I don't know if we're going to see that happening as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the, you know, at the end of the day, $2 trillion was wiped off the market because markets uh, pathologically fear and hate uncertainty, right? Mm. This is something that's never happened. There's no precedent here. So, you know, as this plays out, it's that that uncertainty that uh, will impact a lot of um, a lot of what happens. And, and momentum's a funny thing, right? So even if um, there isn't a total Brexit here and there's some form of hybrid that's negotiated as they go through that process, we'll, um, there will be damage done on both sides of the uh, of the channel. Um, and, it, you know, I guess um, Britain's going to have to work pretty hard to, um, to make sure it, it doesn't suffer some significant ramifications from this decision. Mm. Dave, you, um, a minute ago you were talking about, um, just wanted to jump onto something you mentioned around mm. the whole concept of the EU being around freedom of movement and around um, really that whole concept of breaking down borders. You know, how do you think technology has played a big part in facilitating and, and making that possible? Mm. Yeah, good um, good question, Jared. I think technology really has been the instrument to accelerate globalization. I guess globalization has been the economic and political story of the past thirty years, hasn't it? Mm. And uh, it's been you know, it's been technology that's really given rise to that. You know, we've seen the internet era, the rapid advances in digital technology. Um, communications technology, the fact that, you know, you and I are in different countries now collaborating on this podcast, you know, is evidence of, of technology enabling the, uh, the the breaking down of barriers and frontiers. And I guess, um, you know, this has been a really interesting one because what Brexit's uh, about, if you want to get, you know, you want to go up, up sort of the 30,000 feet level, it's, it's really an attack on globalism, isn't it? It's, you know, fundamentally, this is, uh, the the politics of this were around immigration more than the economy, and you know this is a bit of a sort of rise up of the disaffected lower and middle classes who um, you know are, 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 want to, as they perceive, control their own destiny, um, stop foreigners from coming in and stealing jobs. You know that's the mindset around it, and I think that's um, you know this Brexit is an attack on globalism, and. For us in the technology space, you know, glo- uh, techno- globalization and technology are, you know, are, are intertwined, and so I, you know, I wonder whether, um, you know, could you could you could you view it as technology has has been the cause of this social fragmentation that that leads to something like this? Well, it has shrunk has shrunk the world, hasn't it? You know, technology is. I mean, even in, at its most fundamental level, if you think about the speed in the aviation industry that they've been able to improve, you know, aircraft and therefore the, the price of travel has reduced, you know, literally, literally the physical borders are no longer 
as major as they used to be, but let alone the digital borders. And, you know, I think Brexit mm. has shown me one thing in particular. It's shown how much, in the case of the UK, border security is such a big topic for them. And, you know, I think yeah. if, if you look at border security in the, in the context of technology, it starts asking the question of, you know, are there borders in, you know, in the world of technology? I think we see some in the line of work that we do. Um, you know, you know, one that comes to mind is, um, we see a lot of organizations struggling with the concept of where their data is housed and whether that's in their country or, or in other countries. I know you speak to a lot of, uh, senior level, senior level um, leaders that, you know, have concerns about that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this, there's still this, um, conf- no, it's not, not really confusion, but there's this, um, the juxtaposition between the physical and the virtual in, mm. in that regard. Yeah, we still have this, uh, we're organized politically as nations, as states, you know, and that's a very physical construct. Yet, um, technology or the internet is, it, it has a way of getting around those boundaries, doesn't it? So, um, do we, do we create the, uh, virtual world to be a mirror of the the physical world in that sense. Are we trying to put borders up that, mm. that you know stop the transfer of data between um, between you know sovereign nations or um, or you know whatever the uh, the construct is? That that's happening right now already. You know, you look at what happened with Russia at the end of last year, and you know they passed legislation that says. You know, data on our people has got to live in our country physically. Mm. So, you know, they've actually, they've drawn their line in the sand and you look at the, um, you know, the, the safe harbor agreement that previously existed between the US and, and the EU. And, you know, the concept there was they actually wanted to do the opposite. They wanted to make it possible. So data could be shared between, you know, multiple countries and there'd be some kind of, I guess, guiding principles or common rules around how that data would be, would be shared and accessed. Interestingly, that safe harbor agreement has effectively been, you know, crossed off the record because uh, the feelings from one side from the EU was that the US had too much control, too much access. And so there's been a new, new agreement that's been struck, which is called the privacy shield. And, uh, sounds pretty similar, safe harbor, privacy shield. Uh, and this one's around, um, more transparency around the way that the US government can access, um, data from people outside of their own country. So, you know, I think this is a hot debate that's going on right now and mm. it's, it's probably something we need to devote a whole podcast to, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It sort of conjures up for me the old, um, and this is probably showing my age, you know, um, but uh, Get Smart, <laughs> it was yeah. uh, a favourite child of mine, <laughs> the old cone of silence when they needed to get some privacy around their uh, communications. They would drop down the, the, the cone of silence. So um, I think, you know, where uh, cybersecurity is an aspect of, um, you know, it's fundamental now because that's one of the biggest threats we, we have is is no longer the, the physical um, threat to one another, it's that cyber threat. So, yeah, I think it'd be really cool to get an expert rather than you and I mm, <laughs> to talk idea. about um, that topic. So why don't we... Um, why don't we throw it out there to see uh, if there's anyone out there who wants to jump on a future podcast and, and uh, give us a bit of a down and dirty on the world of cybersecurity. I think that'd be pretty funky. Yeah. So, um, look, I think, I think one of the things this, this also conjures up, we touched, we were sort of touching on it too. It's this 
um, you know, technology enabling, bringing the borders down in, in the social world. So, you know, social media is, you know, uh, has, has really enabled people to connect in ways that were, were not able to be done in the physical sense. Um, even, you know, even the world of pen pals, you know, in, uh, when I was a kid, we'd, we'd, you know, as, you know, in class, we would write to pen pals in various parts of the world. And that was all very exciting. Now it's all instantaneous messaging. Mm. And, um, so, you know, has, has, um, this sort of globalization driven by technology, um, uh, you know, driven this, this sort of social movements and enabled, you know, the, the sort of rising up of groups that perhaps didn't have a voice previously to, to affect, affect social and political change like they, they, they have done with this, for example. It's definitely provided a forum or a place for people to, um, to quickly communicate about, um, anything that's going on. I mean, a couple of good examples here. Uh, recently there was a, a beach in New Zealand that was up for sale and it was going to be sold to a private person. It was going to be locked down so the public couldn't access it. And this is a really good example of a, a social media campaign that went absolutely viral and crazy. And literally a guy was sitting around with a friend one day and said, we should really save that beach, but you know, no one's going to do it if we don't get a lot of investment. So, you know, they started a crowdfunding campaign that hit the news, it hit social media and, and literally it just asked for, Every Kiwi to chuck in twenty dollars or fifty dollars, and you know I, yep. I put I put in fifty dollars, and uh, and they they exceeded their target and they successfully won the bid to buy this beach back. It's a piece of land that probably ninety nine point nine eight percent of people that put their money in will never visit, but it's the concept mm-hmm. that we were able to have this kind of conversation going on online around the fact that actually a lot of people wanted to save it and were prepared to financially fund it, and that kind of thing couldn't have happened. Previously, it wasn't easy to facilitate that kind of conversation and that kind of tracking of the information. I think the um, the other place we've seen this recently in relation to both Brexit and the Australian election is uh, these these technologies are actually making it more possible for uh, people to get connected on the topics that are current, such as we're seeing MPs reaching out to individuals personally and saying. I'm the MP in your area, you know, this is my personal contact information. Reach out to me if you feel like having a conversation. And it's possible for them to target, you know, all the way down to someone that's in their particular location, real-time communication, you know, and that's something perhaps that Mm. wasn't possible previously and has changed, you know, the speed at which people can respond to things. Definitely. And I think, look, we we saw some really great evidence of that over the weekend. I think... In terms of the way that the Australian federal election um, landed, uh, normally what happens is you have a swing for and against the major parties, and that would determine the outcome of the election based on you know how big that swing is, and you know that translates usually to numbers of seats, and it will just determine who um, who gets the majority and can and land um, land in government. This election. Particularly, and I, I guess this has been been um, gradually occurring as each as each um, cycle election cycle comes through. Uh, this one has been very much on local, so a lot of seats have been won against swings and, and swings that are stronger than the, the national average. And it's been put down to very 
um, very local campaigning now and local level campaigning. And I think technology, as you say, has been a real instrument to to enable that to happen. I think that's the positive side because at the end of the day, you know, we're a democracy, a representative democracy. We want our local members to um, take the issues that are important to us as a community or as a local constituency and and take those forward. So, you know, if technology enables us to, to get those voices better heard and, and um, get those local members across more of us, that's that's a positive. The other side of it, though, when this was, you know, part of the, the Labor campaign here was a a fear and, you know, fear campaign around Medicare, or as they've called yeah. it, the Medi-Scare. And they used technology to drive messages, and they were very negative messages, um, and they were called out by a couple of um, independent pundits too for being essentially lies, um, uh, you know, by text messaging out to um, particularly in marginal seats, they uh, they were sending messages as if it was from Medicare. So it would come up on your text, on your um, phone as from, you know, Medicare saying, uh, vote Labor or we will be, we won't survive. Which, um, so I think that's an example for me of we can use that that ability to connect very personally um, for you know positive and for negative. And my concern is that the major parties now are run a and Brexit was like this too. They were run on fear. Uh, they really weren't about you know what's for the greater good here and what's what are the positive policies that we can take forward. It's it's really about trying to scaremonger to get you know get the reaction that you need. So um, you know that's to me technology is is probably um, playing a uh, a role in in making politics a, a a lot more of a dirty play. I think you're right, and do, and do you suppose that um, we, if we're seeing this play out at the moment, you know, in general, are we seeing the same thing in terms of you know technology having this real personalised connection with people? Are, are we seeing that happen with organisations as well? So does that same sort of experience reflect in the in your work life as it does in your personal life do you think yeah i think so i think a lot of things you know we work with a lot of hr departments right and you know around the people and culture space and i think one of the things that we've seen with social media for example and and a lot of um, organizations have grappled with and most of them have, have got there now um with you know how do they how do they manage the use of of social media and and um, what employees say and you know the policy and um, stuff around that when it comes down to it what we've found is in organizations um, social media becomes an amplification of culture so if you've got a toxic culture in your organization then you're going to see that play out um, you know on social media you'll see people on twitter um, uh, negative, uh, you know, uh, and you, you'll find potentially inst- instances of of bullying occurring on social platforms and the like. Um, so you know, I think there's there is a parallel there. I think we're seeing organisations um, probably getting more insight into what's going on because technology's enabling them to see deeper in their organisations. So yeah. uh, I think there's an opportunity there definitely to you know to to try and um, to understand that better and, and make adjustments. I think the other thing, Dave, is that um, we, we see a lot of organizations that are starting to experiment with social in their organization. So starting mm. to bring in the social technology platforms to make it possible for 
Um, you know, they, they always refer to breaking down the silos and embedding their corporate culture and that's the sort of language they use. But, um, but I think it's more just about facilitating and enabling more communication, more collaboration. And, and we've seen the rise of some products like Slack, for example, which is, mm. you know, really just about facilitating the immediacy of conversation. It's, a, it's really the replacement of, you know, of email in some regards for many organizations. And, and I think this is going to become more and more and more common and more of an expectation for the average worker that, you know, the experience they get on the outside world, outside of their work around personalization, real time feedback, you know, being able to keep up and connected with people all the time. I think they're going to expect yeah. to see that in their work as well. And, and as a result, as we've seen with some of these elections, that can bring a rise to it being used in, you know, negative ways as well as being used in positive ways. Definitely. And I think that there are some parallels there to, to what you see in, in I guess, the, the social context, um, whether that's in in uh, communities and or whether that's in inside organisations. You're finding the voices of people perhaps that didn't have that voice. So in organisations where it, you know, perhaps the industrial era, hierarchical command and control mindsets really stopped you from having a voice unless you vocalised it up the chain of command. Um, social's broken that down. You know, you can be, you know, um, the lowest ranking person in an organization now and have influence because you are connected socially and, and build relationships online. And those are becoming much, much more powerful mechanisms of, of influence. Um, and I think organizations now are starting to understand, um, that there is the real, the hierarchy of an organization. And then there's how influence actually works. If you're listening and you're thinking, you know, you're going to be heading on a uh, down a path of getting some social technology. There are some things that we come across um, on a regular mm. basis that, you know, are either things to watch out for or things to be aware of. You know, I think one of the things is, you know, we've talked about this in the past where really um, social technology amplifies your culture. And if you if you've got a if you've got a culture that, you know, is already afraid of you know their managers or already has this concept of kind of trying to protect the knowledge that you have it's going to play out tenfold inside social media and you know i think a lot of people feel that a social tool might help them to fix their culture but the reality is it's just going to give their culture a voice and so i think that's one thing you've got to be aware of and you, and you can't really control social media and you know when you try to control it people won't use it yeah it comes down to trust doesn't it it does, yeah. Yeah, and I look, I, I think um, that that kind of groundswell, you know, the voice of the people, you know, it's becoming more and more um, uh, apparent in, in all aspects. Yeah. Um, I, I was going back to Brexit, uh, I saw there was an, a, a news story on the ABC last night, actually, that um, was interviewing some, some folks in the street of a, a town in the West Mid Midlands in the UK, and uh, one pundit, um, well, one punter actually <laughs> put it quite nice. He said, the GFC was caused by the rich and it affected the poor. Uh, Brexit was caused by the poor and it's going to affect the rich. <laughs> and he said it with a bit of glee. Um, but it's, you know, it highlights the fact that there are social movements here that are being, that are able to affect change um, in ways that, that couldn't have been contemplated, you know, without 
you know, without real uprisings, like civil war type uprisings, this is, um, so I think there's some, some good in that, but I, I also think, you know, organizations, um, have got to try and understand, you know, they've got to tap into the, that groundswell and, and seek to work with it rather than try and control, control it and corral it. I think that's probably the, the parallel I'd take there. And, and the big lesson in that space is the Occupy movement where we are the, you know, the 99% or, you know, really that the, the rise of the Occupy movement over the last couple of years mm. really came from social technology. It was possible for people to say, let's, let's get on board and do this. And the more that people ignored it, the longer it lasted. So, um, yeah. you know, I think that's probably a good lesson and, and Brexit could take that lesson as well. You, you can't ignore the fact that more than half of the UK have signaled that they, they feel passionately enough about the problems that they want to leave. So they've got to address that. But, you know, the question for the next six to 12 months will be how they go about doing that. And I think that's something that, you know, we can check in again as a bit more information comes to light on whether um how, how Brexit is starting to play out and the impact that's having on mm. the technology industry. Absolutely. And I think some stage in the next six to nine months, we might have someone have formed a government here in Australia too. So that would be helpful. <laughs> you can only hope. And we talked a little bit about NBN last time and the impact of, um, of of which party actually takes things forward. So, you know, these are not insignificant um, issues here. Look, um, Jared, I think we might have just exhausted the time we have this morning yet I think again. So. Um, good conversation once again. Um, I, I hope in the weeks to come that we'll be able to move away from politics and, and get more down and dirty in the in the world of people and technology. But always good to, to get your views. Um, appreciate you taking some time out to connect with me this morning here, as I do all of you out there listening to this. So thanks again, Jared. Thank you, Dave. And uh, look out for us again in the next uh, few uh, next couple of weeks. Um, we've enjoyed uh, spending time in this morning. Uh, so until next time, this has been uh, the Jazz and Gaz Show, talking people and technology. See you again soon. Bye.